Good morning, GMHC. I'm Phil, and it's a privilege to welcome you to this session, Vaccines, a Global Perspective. I'm recording this session on the first Saturday morning of October 2020. Most of you will be listening on the second Saturday of November 2020, and some of you will be listening later. Realize that science is advancing, and some of the information that I'm recording now will need to be updated when we meet together in November, and indeed we'll be able to in interact personally after we go through these slides in November. Wherever in the world you are to listen to this, welcome. It's a privilege to be part of this 25th annual Global Missions Health Conference. First, let's cover a few basics that we're supposed to cover. I don't really have any disclosures that would impact the content of this talk, but I have written some textbook chapters and co-edited a book uh, and received some royalties or free copies of the book. I don't think any of this affects my actual content of what I'm telling you this morning. I've written chapters about pediatric travelers for a couple of travel medicine texts, and I co-edited the American Academy of Pediatrics Global Child Health book. I even get a little more than a dollar each time that book is sold. But I don't think that changes the content of what I'm saying. I also write monthly commentaries for an educational publication called Infectious Disease Alert. Again, I don't think that this provides any financial or conflict of interest that would make me not be able to be credible as we talk about these issues today. But I have developed some personal experiences and perhaps biases. When I first got to Africa to live in the mid-1980s, I was sick for a couple of weeks with typhoid, and after a couple of years there, I got hepatitis A and was sick for about 10 months. I personally understand the power of vaccine-preventable diseases, and I'm glad that since I had each of those infections, good vaccines have been developed, so you won't have to have those same experiences. Tragically, I've had dozens of patients die from vaccine-preventable infections. I know the pain of children and the pain of families as people's deaths could have been prevented by vaccination. That makes me care, and I hope you too care about vaccines. And indeed you do, since you're here with me today for this session. We'll also discuss some not-yet-approved vaccines, some off-label use of some vaccines uh, that are not yet available because they're not fully studied. Uh, so, ready to go? Let's give a global perspective to vaccines. During this session, I hope you'll be able to gain an ability to explain the rationale for using vaccines. You'll be able to learn how to discuss some of the ethical and social issues related to vaccination, and you'll know good sources to get more detailed information about vaccines and the administration of vaccines. We'll talk about the positive value of vaccines, the purported problems with vaccines, a plan for the vaccination of you, world travelers, and finally, we'll discuss the present state of COVID-19 vaccination. Let's get rolling. What is the positive value of vaccines? What good are vaccines anyway? Vaccines have been around for a long time. What good have they done? This is a data-rich slide, but part of the fun of doing all this virtually is that you'll be able to focus in and look carefully at some of the data on slides like this. This shows, for diseases listed down the left-hand column, how many cases and deaths there were in average years, the second and third columns, before a vaccine was available. The just right of middle column says when the vaccines became available, and then we get an idea in the final two columns how much reduction there has been in cases of each illness and of deaths since vaccines became available. 
Let's look at the bottom line for starters, tetanus. Tetanus is a tragic illness that affects my pediatric patients during their first couple of weeks of life. Before vaccines became available in the 1940s, there were about 580 cases with 472 deaths due to tetanus in the United States each year. Globally, the case rate and fatality rate was much higher than what we were seeing in the United States. But these American data give an idea that even with other good aspects of medical care, there were still a lot of people dying. As we go over to the final column in that bottom right row, we can see that there's been a 99%, in fact, these data were from 2007, and there was by then more than a 99% reduction in tetanus deaths in the United States. What about polio? Polio, we know from historical photos and stories, was killing thousands of people a year in the pre-vaccine era. During my childhood, polio vaccines became available and campaigns were instituted to give school children polio. Now, polio has been eradicated in the United States and doesn't exist in almost every country of the world. Illnesses are being prevented and lives are being saved. Measles, second row from the top of this table, there used to be half a million cases a year of measles in the United States. The peak was in 1958. I was three years old then, when there were three quarters of a million cases of measles. Fortunately, the vaccine is incredibly effective when it is used. And even now, every few years, we see outbreaks of measles in the United States. Measles continues to ravage individuals living in other countries and cycles through communities every few years. This is a problem not of the vaccine, but a problem of administration of the vaccine. Measles persists because vaccination is still incomplete. But if we run down these far right two columns, we can see that for each of these old-time vaccine-preventable diseases, the prevention rates, preventing cases and deaths, is over 90%. Vaccines have led to the direct reduction of hundreds of thousands of illnesses and hundreds and even thousands of deaths each year in the United States. What has happened since GMHC started 25 years ago? There are more vaccines available, and this table just gives a few examples. Hepatitis A, the thing that plagued me during my early years overseas. Hepatitis B, which has run rampant through the world, affecting newborns and older adults. Haemophilus influenza and pneumococcus were common causes of meningitis and pneumonia, an invasive systemic disease when I was in training. Um, and then finally, we see chickenpox, a rite of passage of children when I was young and now preventable by disease. We can see the case rates, the hospitalization rates, and the deaths in the second, third, and fourth columns from the left during the pre-vaccine area. Running down the middle of this column, you'll see that most of these illnesses became vaccine preventable during the era of GMHC during the last 25 years. And when we get down to the prevention rate, the percent reduction, uh, we can see that we've done a pretty good job. And yet these aren't like the other ones. Haemophilus influenza, we're preventing more than 99% of those infections and deaths. Pneumococcus disease is much better than these 2000 data, 2007 data show. Uh, it's better now, but we still have a ways to go. We still need to make sure that all individuals are appropriately vaccinated. What is the positive value of vaccines? Vaccines prevent illness, and vaccines save lives. 
vaccines have done more than most any other intervention to improve the health of our global population. But how do vaccines work? In general, there are a couple of ways. There are passive vaccines and there are active vaccines. Vaccine means that we're giving an antigen. We're giving a piece of material to a living human to protect the human from getting infected or sick with a particular disease. A passive vaccine means that we're just giving the individual protection. The individual's body does not need to respond or do anything. We just give protection, usually in the form of antibodies. An active vaccine means that we give the person chemicals, pieces of vaccines, or something related to the illness. We give the person an active vaccine, and then their body has to respond. The recipient's body needs to build up a response that will then subsequently protect the person against the illness. What are some examples? Passive vaccines typically were giving antibody that protects the person without the person needing to mount any personal response. This happens with general clusters of antibodies when we give immunoglobulin to prevent measles in someone who is exposed to measles. We also have specific passive vaccines. Now we have antibodies against rabies and hepatitis B, for example. When someone has been exposed potentially to rabies, we can give a dose of antibodies that will bind the germs before the germs make the people sick. The same thing is possible for newborns born exposed to hepatitis B. We can give hepatitis B specific antibodies to protect them. So one way of giving protection against illnesses, against infections, is to give passive vaccines either general antibody or specific antibody for a specific infection. Most commonly, though, we vaccinate with active vaccines. We give an antigen, a piece of an infection, a piece of a germ, or something similar to a piece of a germ, or even a whole germ. We give the antigen, and that stimulates the individual person to then develop, to produce an antibody response so that they make their own antibodies to protect them against subsequent exposure to the germs. Some active vaccines involve giving a live virus. This is true for measles and for yellow fever. Now, of course, the virus has been changed during the production process, so the virus will not be as dangerous as the, real vac as the real infection, but it's an attenuated or altered or changed virus. So we can give an attenuated live measles vaccine or an attenuated changed altered live yellow fever vaccine, and that will promote the individual's production of their own antibodies so that they will then have antibodies to bind a future real virus to prevent them from getting sick. And these vaccines are incredibly effective. The other form of active immunization is to give a non-living, a non-live vaccine. This works for influenza and for hepatitis A, for example. So we give a killed vaccine or a piece of a vaccine. We give something that has parts of the vaccine or something similar to parts of the virus or something similar to parts of the virus, but it's not alive. These can't actually cause any infection, not even a mild infection. So how do we vaccinate? In general, there are two mechanisms. We give passive antibodies or we give active antigens that stimulate the individual to make his or her own antibodies. All right, fine. So there is positive value of vaccines, but not everybody is in a big hurry to become vaccinated. What are the purported problems with vaccines? Of course, no vaccine is perfect. 
protection rates vary. It would be great if we could give a vaccine with no side effects that protected everybody who received the vaccine. That's not the case, though. Medical science isn't perfect, and vaccines aren't perfect. Protection rates vary. Our annual influenza vaccine is only about 50 to 70% effective each year. It's not really our fault. It's just that the viruses are clever and they keep mutating and changing. So last year's vaccine wouldn't work as well as this year's vaccine. And it's hard to predict just how to make the vaccine each year. So influenza vaccines protect roughly half to two thirds of the people who receive them. Typhoid vaccines are great. They're much better than they were when I got typhoid fever when we didn't have a good vaccine years ago. But they still only protect about 70% of people that get those vaccines. And this is true whether it's the inactivated injectable form or the live oral form. Typhoid vaccines protect about 70% of people from subsequently getting sick after exposure to typhoid fever. Measles and hepatitis A vaccines, however, are fantastic. Measles vaccines protect about 97 to 99% of people who are vaccinated. Hepatitis A vaccine protects almost everybody, nearly 100%. So vaccines are great, but they aren't perfect. Protection rates vary and are sometimes incomplete. There are side effects too. For injectable vaccines, it hurts to get a needle. We can try a distraction, we can try touch, we can try putting cold over the skin, but vaccines hurt. Children know that. My pediatric patients get scared of vaccines. There are side effects of the discomfort of the injectable forms of vaccine. About 10% of people getting tetanus shots get soreness in their arm or leg after they're vaccinated. And yellow fever vaccine is fantastic to protect against yellow fever, but it's a live vaccine and some people actually get so sick from the vaccine that they don't survive. In medicine, we talk about this maxim of do no harm. And yet, if we can protect 70,000 people from a death rate of 50% when they get sick, that's good. But there is a cost when overall one out of 70,000 people might die because of the vaccine. So what's the purported problem with vaccine? We'll admit vaccines aren't perfect. Not all vaccines are perfectly protective for everybody. And most vaccines have some side effects. There are also concerns about vaccines because as science advances and as viruses and bacteria change, it seems like the rules keep changing. Indeed, we don't vaccinate the same way we would have in the past, and in the future we'll vaccinate differently. History tells us that over geography and over time, there have been changes in the needs for vaccine. The first Continental Congress in the United States had to change its schedule because yellow fever was running rampant through Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was locked down and people were not able to travel in and out of the city. We've changed now even that we have vaccines. Who will vaccinate? There wasn't much yellow fever in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, for many, many years. And then the mosquito vectors brought the virus, brought yellow fever into the city. And there's more yellow fever in Rio now than there was a decade or a decade and a half ago. But fortunately, the incident seems to be going down again due to vaccination. So the rules, the needs for vaccines are different in different places, and they vary over time. And of course, as we mentioned, viruses change. Influenza is the example of that, where there are different influenza germs requiring us to keep developing different influenza vaccines. And welcome to 2020. As we well know this year, new viruses come along. So we need to change what we're doing for vaccines. So there are purported problems with vaccines. One of them is vaccines aren't perfect. And the other is that the 
administration system and recommendations for vaccines keep changing. But some people will say, are vaccines really needed? I think the data that we showed earlier on, about 15 minutes ago, I think the data that we showed are fairly clear that we can save in this country hundreds of thousands of sick days every year and hundreds of deaths every year by giving vaccines. Vaccines have proven extremely effective. And as we look globally, the value of vaccines is statistically even greater. Working overseas in many countries of Africa and visiting many countries in Asia, I have seen the power of vaccines to transform communities, to remove tragedy from being a common occurrence to a rare occurrence. Vaccines do a lot. What about the incidence rate of illnesses? Um, without vaccine, about 1% of people that get what used to be common, chickenpox, will have a severe life-threatening illness. With the vaccine, not so much. What about giving yellow fever vaccine? It's fatal, as we mentioned, in half of people that get the infection. With the vaccine, they're protected. Rabies? There are only two or three people in the history of the world that have been known to survive symptomatic rabies. But if you get appropriately immunized with passive and active vaccine after a rabies exposure before getting symptoms, you won't get sick. Lives are saved. We could go through each of the vaccines. Are the vaccines really needed? If we want to cut down on illness and save lives, yes. There's not another way to prevent all these illnesses, and vaccines work. Vaccines save lives. But then some would say, People are just trying to poison us. Fortunately, the thimerosal controversy or conspiracy theory has subsided some in recent years. But the logic went like this. Thimerosal was a preservative that was added to vaccines to help keep them safe. And thimerosal is related to mercury. And mercury can be toxic. So maybe thimerosal is toxic. So for a while, people didn't want to get any thimerosal-containing vaccines because they would thought they'd be toxic. Fortunately, though, thimerosal has never been shown to be toxic, even if it's related to mercury. So should we reject vaccines with thimerosal because they're related to something else that might be toxic? Absolutely not. I would quote the biblical author that said, Come, let us reason together. Think about it. Let's not just jump on the fear bandwagon and believe all the conspiracy theories. Thimerosal is not toxic, and it's good in vaccines, and it helps the vaccine safely help us prevent illness. But then there's a morality question. Some people think that some vaccines are immoral. Does giving a vaccine make us morally complicit with a bad act that happened previously. Here's the story. There are a few remaining vaccines that were created, that were developed, that were made from tissue obtained from fetuses that had been aborted. Decades ago, there were some aborted babies who'd been aborted for other reasons, and their tissues were salvaged and then used to provide cell cultures to get tissue lines to keep growing. And so those tissue lines became useful for medical care and even for vaccine development. The abortions were not done to produce vaccines. The abortions were done for other reasons. But then the aborted tissue was used to develop vaccines secondarily. So the question comes up, should you personally accept a vaccine that came from a sinful act? Does the source of the vaccine mean that the vaccine would be inappropriate? Should you, as a healthcare provider, give a vaccine that was derived from an abortion? 
Now, some would say there's a moral complicity. And if I use a good product of a sinful act, that makes me complicit in agreement with, supportive of the sinful act itself. But I answer that question myself with an analogy. If I was in kidney failure and needed an organ donation, would I accept an organ that came from a deceased donor even if that donor had been murdered? If the person died because of a sinful, murderous act, does that mean I should not use benefit out of that tragedy? If I needed a kidney, I would accept a kidney, even if it came from a person who died because of a sin. I look at it similarly. There is some good that can come secondarily from those decades-old abortions. I am not in agreement with doing any more abortions to provide more vaccine tissue, but I'm also not disagreeing with using vaccines that came from aborted tissue, even though the abortions were done for totally different reasons. So there are lots of purported problems with vaccines, but I think vaccines still have value and are useful. And the real challenge, I think, with those that look at the problems and are hesitant to get vaccines is that vaccines prevent illness and save lives. And if we're not getting vaccines, we're missing the opportunity to prevent illness and save lives. Delayed vaccination, as some propose, delays protection. Some people have said, don't give so many vaccines to babies. Let's wait till they're older and they can handle it. Well, that would sound logical, except that the reason we give the vaccines is to help those babies get older. I've lived in settings where several percent of the population don't survive till their first birthday, often because they didn't get vaccines. Delayed vaccination means delayed protection, and delayed protection means more illness and more death. Others would say, what about partial vaccination? Let's just give some of the vaccines. Let's not overload our babies with too many antigens. Or I just don't like shots, so let me pick and choose which ones I'll get. Partial vaccination leads to partial protection. If we don't get vaccinated for an illness, we won't be protected, and then we might get sick from it. I did not enjoy having typhoid fever, and I did not enjoy being sick for months with the aftermath of hepatitis A. I was not protected because I wasn't vaccinated. Fortunately, we now have good vaccines for typhoid fever and hepatitis A. You can be more fully protected than I was since I first went overseas when we didn't have those vaccines available. In fact, we could raise the analogy. We could ask the question, is non-vaccination an example of child abuse? For a family not to have a safe house with smoke detectors puts their children at risk of injury in a fire. For a family not to have their child in a restraining seat or to use seat belts puts the individuals at risk of terrible tragic death from a car accident. We don't want parents to neglect the health of their children. We don't want parents to put their children in danger. As a pediatrician, I see parents choosing not to vaccinate their children. And against the will of the child, the child is at risk of illness and death. Interestingly, about 15 months ago, a survey was done in a major middle U.S. health system. And they asked parents what the parents thought about their pediatrician and how the pediatrician should respond to parents who chose not to vaccinate their children. 40% of patients did not want to see a pediatrician or another doctor who was willing to care for non-vaccinated patients. 40% of patients cared enough for the health of other people that they did not want to see a care provider, a doctor, who was morally complicit 
with non-vaccination. Interesting. So there are purported problems with vaccines, uh, but there are also huge problems with the non-administration of vaccines. Let's move on. What about you? You're thinking about traveling the world. Perhaps you already are living in a different place. Um, COVID has altered travel plans, but how should we vaccinate those of us who travel the world to be of service in other places? There are good recommendations. There are good plans for how to vaccinate. Of course, diseases are different from one place to another place. So vaccine recommendations will vary from place to place. But there is good information available from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, in this country. The American Academy of Pediatrics gives great pediatric vaccine information. The World Health Organization gives information for people all over the world. And then various national groups have their own vaccine programs related to the availability of vaccines and the disease epidemiology in their countries. These recommendations are adapted for local and regional needs, and these recommendations balance the cost, the risk, and the benefits of different vaccines. As we travel the world, we can make sure that we're up to date on currently appropriate vaccines for each of the places in which we will be living, and we can realize that costs can be covered, risks can be mitigated, and benefits can be received because of following good vaccine guidance. So some examples. Even the fine print here is not necessary to see right now, but this just points out that if you want to get vaccine information about the routine regular vaccines for those who spend a lot of time in the United States, you can go to the CDC website and you can pull up schedules. This colorful image is giving guidance about a variety of vaccines for babies aged 0 to 15 months. On the same CDC website, you can click to get vaccine recommendations for older individuals and for adults. All of us can find good guidance for routine vaccines. But we're going to other places. What about travel-related vaccines as we move to a different part of the world with different diseases, with different epidemiology? There are a couple of sources for help there. We can go to the CDC again, and the CDC gives an interactive website for travelers. As we see on the left here, you can select the country to which you're going and see what vaccines might be related to use in that country. Of course, Medical care received on a website might not be individualized for each of our own needs in view of our age and our travel plans and our medical underlying conditions and medications that we take. So we should probably get specialized care. The ISTM, the International Society of Travel Medicine, at the website noted on this slide, has an online clinic directory. You can put in your country and your state in this country or the province in another country, and you can find vaccine sites, clinics, where travel medicine trained individuals are certified and can give appropriate vaccines. As you travel, you'll want to especially consider hepatitis A if you were born since the vaccine became available and haven't received it yet. Everybody living anywhere in the world should have a hepatitis A vaccine. But if you're more than about 25 years old, you might not have had this routinely as a child. And you'll need to make sure you've had the two-dose series as an adult. For those going to some parts of Asia, vaccination against Japanese encephalitis virus would be appropriate. And for those going to many countries, where dogs and other animals still carry rabies, rabies vaccine can be useful. This is particularly important for long-term workers and for children in some areas. And of course, in any less resourced country, typhoid fever is still fairly common and typhoid vaccine can be relevant. We've mentioned yellow fever vaccine a few times. Yellow fever vaccine is important for those of us traveling to some parts of sub-Saharan Africa and some parts of South America. 
In the old days, we figured that we needed yellow fever vaccines with boosters every 10 years. Now we know that a single vaccine can protect with lifetime coverage. It's a little risky in the very young infants and in older adults. So for young, healthy adults, as many of you are participating in this session today, a single yellow fever vaccine can protect you for future travel um, throughout your life. But we have to put vaccines in context. Vaccines are not the whole answer to preventing illnesses. They're not the whole story. We still need sanitation and hygiene. We still need mosquito bite avoidance. But the plan for us world travelers working in other parts of the planet, vaccine is one weapon in a multifaceted arsenal to combat deadly disease. And vaccination is indeed a very good weapon. Let's move on. Let's talk about the present state of COVID-19 vaccination. As I mentioned, I'm recording this talk on the first Saturday of October, and we'll be interacting together in a few minutes for many of you in our question and answer session on the second Saturday of November. We'll have updated information then. But let's cover a few basics about COVID vaccination. Research is continuing and quickly. Some think of Star Wars and say research is going on at warp speed. There are a few phases of vaccine research, and when we hear talk about various vaccines under study, it's helpful to think of these phases. Phase one studies look at a few people and see if the vaccine is safe, if it causes side effects. So a phase one study is usually small, with a few healthy people involved looking at safety of the vaccine. Phase two studies are larger, and they're looking at effectiveness or efficacy of the vaccine. How well does the vaccine work in providing some measure of protection against subsequent illness? So phase one is about safety. Phase two is about effectiveness of the vaccine in a somewhat small group of people. Phase three extends the vaccine study into a larger setting, into more real-life settings, to see in a variety of people and in a lot of people, how does the vaccine work with regular life exposures? If a vaccine candidate does well through these phases of study, then the vaccine can be licensed and marketed and used. Phase four studies include following up after the vaccine is licensed and used to see how does the vaccine work with widespread implementation. This is important. Rotavirus vaccines seemed safe and effective in all sorts of real-life settings. But once it was licensed and used, the initial rotavirus vaccine was found to cause side effects was found to cause a risk of intussusception and life-threatening intestinal complications. So vaccine use was halted and better rotavirus vaccines were developed. Similarly, phase one, two, and three studies made it look like a new dengue vaccine about five years ago was protective against dengue fever. The vaccine was used widely licensed in the Philippines and then people started dying because of the vaccine. So once the vaccine is implemented and administered and seems good, we should still keep track of it with these phase four post-licensure studies to make sure it's still safe and doesn't need to be modified. So what's going on with COVID? COVID is this spiky protein that we've seen pictures of. Up on the upper left of this slide, we can see a schematic picture of the spike proteins um, with the envelope, the green lining, and the proteins around the capsule. This is this spiky, round sort of object. If we're going to vaccinate against this virus, we could think about targeting either the proteins of the spikes, or the proteins of the capsule, or the proteins of the envelope and the membrane. There are different ways we could target the vaccine. And indeed, we're doing that. We're targeting different parts of the virus, different proteins in the virus, with different vaccines that are under development. Some vaccines could be live viruses that are attenuated to not be dangerous. 
Some could be killed or inactivated viruses, with the whole virus is just not alive to cause actual infection. Or some viruses might attach a piece of an antigen onto some different viral vector to sneak it into the infecting risk virus. Or we could have subunit or nucleic acid vaccines. Different types of vaccines with different targets, all trying to stop COVID-19, all trying to stop SARS-CoV-2 from causing illness. And currently, as of early October 2020, there are about 25 different COVID-19 vaccines under study. These three slides prevent, present in tabular form some of the clinical trials going on with different vaccines. Some are virus-like particles, some are inactivated, some are RNA, some are DNA vaccines um, being done by academic groups, being studied by commercial groups um, in lots of different settings around the world. In the second to right column, you can see that there are studies in different phases, most of them in phase one safety trials, some in phase two early efficacy trials, and some in phase three moving on to wider spread sorts of trials to see how effective they are. In addition to all of these active vaccines, people have tried giving antibodies passive vaccination from people who have already overcome COVID-19 to see how effective those might be. It looks like active vaccination has more potential to provide lasting protection. So lots of vaccine trials are continuing. We'll keep working and we'll see what becomes available and safe and effective in trying to reduce the terrible tragedy of this current global pandemic. But then there are ethical issues. We've realized during the pandemic that even resource-rich countries don't have all the resources they need to fight off COVID-19. So once we have vaccines available, who should get them? Who should have the priority for vaccination? Young people who can receive them safely? Older people who are more likely to die? Rich people because they're in a country or a setting and can pay for expensive vaccines? Or the poor people? We know that the risk of getting sick and dying with COVID-19 is greater in social economic deprivation settings. What about racial risk groups? Not everybody has a similar risk of a bad outcome. Or what about us, the healthcare workers, putting our lives on the line, as it were? Should we be prioritized? There have been a couple of recent great publications that review some of these ethical issues as the world gears up to appropriately give vaccine. But along the way, beware. Not all research is done appropriately. And it's been fascinating, even in the last six months, as noted by uh, Katrina Bromstedt, how there have been dozens of papers submitted to excellent medical journals that were subsequently withdrawn or retracted because of improper research ethics. We need to be careful when we hear pre-peer-reviewed data suggesting that something might work, and we need to be careful in our review of new scientific developments to make sure that, in fact, we're seeing good research um, that's going to give credible results. So we move on, appropriately trying to take action against COVID-19. So we've talked a bit about vaccination. For us, the world travelers, what good are vaccines? What are the risks? How can we find out information about administering vaccines? And what are we going to do about COVID-19? I leave you with five final take-home messages. First, Vaccines save lives and reduce illnesses. Vaccines are good. Second, vaccines aren't perfect, but they can be used wisely. Third, consider. Think about this. Reason together. Uh, some people are afraid of vaccines. Let's consider concerns, but then Nike. Just do it. We need to get vaccines administered to save lives. And then as we administer vaccines or receive our own vaccines, we need to stay current with the appropriate timing related to geography and our own personal risk factors for different diseases, especially as we consider traveling to areas where there are different diseases than what we grew up with. 
Finally, fifth, stay tuned. There is action against COVID with vaccines being developed, and people are still trying to work to combat HIV, malaria, and other diseases with new vaccines on the way. We can look forward to good times as we continue to use medical science, as we continue to gain knowledge to help prevent disease in ourselves and in patients and in future patients as we, GMHC, as we spread through the world in service of others. And now, in the real live settings, we get to interact a bit. Thanks for participating with me.